Today we're going to be reading from Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it, open it up. It's page 573 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And I have to apologize up front. I have to say I'm sorry. This is a very nerdy and a very geeky sermon. Uh, and there's a difference too, and, and sadly I am both of those things. If you like science and systematic theology, then you're in for a treat. And I think that's probably like three of you guys. But for everyone else, um, my hope that this morning is that we would be stretched and that we would love and worship God with our hearts and our minds. Um, and, and I think that we have a tendency sometimes to punt to mystery. And yes, God is mysterious, and we don't know everything about God. And we, uh, you know, we'll spend eternity probing who God is and, and, and enjoying Him. But, but I don't want us to just jump there immediately. Um, I hope that as we press into the amazingness of God's eternal nature, uh, that we would be in awe of who God is. My desire is that we would be passionate uh, about God and who He is, because I think it really matters. I don't want us to have this small, this low-definition uh, picture of God. So hang in there with me. All right, our verse today, Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For a child is born to us, a son is given, the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all of eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. And so we're continuing today our Advent series on these throne names found in Isaiah. And we're going to look at the phrase eternal father. And so my goal today is to communicate um, as we go through this, what, what the, the phrase eternal father, what it doesn't mean, what it means, and then why it matters. Um, David and Rick, um, Dave Erickson and Rick have given us great context for what was happening in the time of Isaiah over the last couple of weeks, and that's uh, been very insightful. David Erickson also gave this, this analogy of God's revelation of himself. He said that, that Isaiah was living in this time, imagine, before the sunrise, and that we're living in this time that's after. And so Jesus being the light of the world, he illuminates things that were present, but were hidden. I think this is true of the Trinity as well. For example, in the very first chapter of Genesis, God is speaking about uh, creating, and he says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. There's this plurality. He's talking about there's somebody else there. There's something else going on. And then we look at Jesus' final words to his disciples, and it's this great commission. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Singular. He's got this singular name for the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And, and even at that time, right, before Pentecost, we, the Holy Spirit was present, but it wasn't present, hadn't manifested in the way um, in which it would function in these last days. All right, so I'm going to talk a little bit about the Trinity today, and the reason I'm going to do that is because we have this, word, this phrase, everlasting Father, and yet Jesus is the Son, Right? 
So what is the orthodox understanding of the Trinity? The word Trinity isn't found in the Bible, but that doesn't mean that the concept is not taught throughout Scripture. There's lots of words found in the Bible that, um, that we believe and trust in. The word Bible is not in the Bible. The word divinity, not there. Incarnation, monotheism. These are real things that we believe in and are taught throughout Scripture. Not everything in the Bible is, is simple and straightforward as well. And so we're going to look at these three biblical truths uh, that make up the Trinity, that help us make sense of it. The first being, there is one and only one God, eternal, immutable. The second truth that we're going to look at is, there are three eternal persons described in Scripture, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these persons are identified as being fully deity, that they're, they're divine, they're God. So the Bible teaches not only that the Father is God or that God is God, but that the Son is God, the Son is deity, and the Holy Spirit is deity as well. The third uh, truth that we're going to look at is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are never identified as one another. That is, they are carefully differentiated as persons. All right, this first idea. Uh, the Bible declares that there is one and only one God. We look at verses uh, later in Isaiah, like Isaiah 43.10, and it says, You are my witness, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. He says, Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. None before, none after. He's the only one. A little bit later, just a couple verses later, 44.6, it says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God beside me. God is very clear in, in speaking through Isaiah to His people about who He is. Last one, and, and there's many, many more. These are just uh, three that I often use when talking to people about the Trinity because they're, they're very close um, relationally in, in, in the Scriptures. They're all in, in the end of Isaiah. And it says, Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it, and you are my witnesses? Is there any God beside me, or is there any other rock? I know of none. And so when, when we hear about God's talked about in Scripture, um, you know, God says that, look, there is no other God. These, these gods of wood or silver or gold, these aren't real. These are idols. The second point is that Scripture demonstrates that the Father, Son, and Spirit are deity. And so no one really... Uh, disputes the idea that, that God the Father is God when dismissing the Trinity. The problem is that in every case where the Trinity uh, is denied, what happens is that Jesus or the Holy Spirit are diminished. They're distorted. Jesus becomes another God. He becomes a lesser God. So we don't have time to look at every verse. And believe me, there's tons of ways in which um, the Father, Son, and Spirit are equated with each other. They have the name of God. They're, we know that only God forgives sin, and yet we see this happen with all three persons. Um, 
we see they're all eternal, the, um, they indwell us, these kind of things. There's tons of these examples, but we're just going to look at this. Uh, I thought this was a great quote from Tim Barnett from Stand to Reason. And speaking about Jesus, he gives us this, uh, these six A um, words that may help us talk to someone about this. He says about Jesus, he admits he is God, he is addressed as God, he does the actions of God, he has the aliases of God, he is adored as God, and he has God's attributes. So what should I conclude? And we're going to look at just uh, one passage for the, for the Holy Spirit. Uh, we know that God is eternal, and we're going to be talking about the eternality of God today. But Hebrews 9.14 says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God? This idea that the Holy Spirit is eternal. All right? The last truth that we're going to look at is this idea that the Bible shows that the Father, Son, and Spirit are differentiated. And I think this is important. When I talk to non-Trinitarians uh, about the Trinity, when I talk to Mormons, when I talk to Jehovah's Witnesses, almost all the time um, they will be the one who brings it up if I, if I can't get to it fast enough. And they will say, um, let me st stop for a second, they will, they will if I ask, when, when they deny, when they say the Trinity is not true or the Trinity is not um, biblically, biblically supported, sometimes I'll ask them, well, what do you think the Trinity is? And if I don't ask them, sometimes they'll just tell me, well, this is the Trinity, okay? And this is what they say almost all the time. They say, look, God was up in heaven and then he comes down and he's born and he becomes Jesus and then Jesus goes back up to heaven and then he comes down and he becomes the Holy Spirit and that's the Trinity, Okay, that's not the Trinity. That's not what we believe. That's an early heresy called modalism. This idea uh, that God would change forms. Okay, now I think this is important because this is what they are taught. Um, and and uh, Christians have had this must may have had this misunderstanding as well. But again, this is this is easily disputed. Because what are they going to say to me? They say, well, well, what about at the baptism of Jesus? Jesus is being baptized. We hear the voice of the Father. We see the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. What's going on there? They think that they've got us, right? Or they'll say, what, you know, they'll say, they'll say, what was happening there? Was Jesus a ventriloquist? Or they'll say, when Jesus is praying to the Father, is he praying to himself? Well, if that's what we believed, we'd be in trouble, but it's not. Okay? And therefore, it's a straw man. What Scripture actually shows throughout the Bible is that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are different persons. Okay? We see Jesus interacting with the Father. We see that the Jesus is saying that the, the Spirit would come, that, that the Holy Spirit, um, as it indwells us, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. Right? They're different. James White provides this definition of the Trinity that I think is, is a great and useful one. He says, there is one eternal being of God, indivisible, infinite. This one being of God is shared by three co-equal, co-eternal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so we've got these terms of being and person, and what does that mean? Well, if we think of a, 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 this little girl, 
and we ask, what is she? The answer is that she's a human being. But if we ask, who is she? She's a person. So she's one what and one who. And this is our experience. Everybody that we know is a unipersonal being, right? But when we come to God and we ask, what is God? God is this divine being. But if we ask, who is God? God is the Father, and God is the Son, and God is the Holy Spirit. So God is one what and three who's. And that's completely foreign to us. And I think that that's okay. And that's why every analogy that we've come up with to explain the Trinity ultimately fails. If, it, if we say it's like an egg or like ice or like a shamrock or whatever, it's not true. It fails. It doesn't work because God is completely unique. And that's okay. He says in Isaiah 40, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare unto him? Sorry, King James there. Um, he says, remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. It makes sense that all the analogies for God would fail, that he is uniquely God. And so let's take a look here. What happens when we remove one of these biblical truths? So we're going to remove the first one, this idea that there's one and only one God. What we end up with is, is the Father... Jesus and the Holy Spirit, they're different, but that's polytheism. That's mean, meaning many gods. And this is what we see uh, with the Greek and Roman gods. They believe that there are many gods. This is what we see in Hinduism. This is also what we see in Mormonism, right? They believe that Jesus is a different God than the Father. If we remove the second part of this, that the Father, Son, and Spirit are deity, that they are God. We end up with one God, but that the Holy Spirit and Jesus are different from Him. So this is called subordinationism. And it's this idea, this heresy, that Jesus or the Holy Spirit are not equal to the Father in nature or being. And so when I talk to Jehovah's Witnesses, this is what they believe. They believe that Jesus was a created being, that He's not eternal, that He's not God, that He's less than. Finally, if we take away this differentiated aspect of it, we, we're back to this idea of modalism, this idea that God takes different forms. And so we see this, there, yes, it's an ancient heresy, but there are people who believe it right now, today. They're called oneness Pentecostal. And sometimes we've, we've heard mistaken Christians, maybe you've done it before, where you start praying, and you're praying to the Father, oh, Father, thank you, and then, and then you say, thank you for, for dying on the cross, Right? I want us to have an accurate view of who God is because it changes our worship, it changes our prayer, it changes how we relate to God. All right, so what it doesn't mean. Now that we understand what the Trinity teaches, some would ask if the Orthodox Christian doctrine of the Trinity holds that God is in one essence, in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yet... As we just read, Isaiah 9, 6 says the Messiah is the everlasting Father. What's going on? How can Jesus both be the Father and the Son? Well, we have to understand that this verse isn't a Trinitarian formula that calls Jesus the Father. Remember, the Father, Son, and Spirit are distinct and they're differentiated throughout Scripture. And so heaven wasn't absent when Christ was on the earth, nor is it absent now because the Holy Spirit indwells 
the children of God. Jesus is reigning right now at the hand of the Father right now, and the Holy Spirit indwells believers right now. So if it's not referring to the Trinity, then what's going on? Well, in ancient Jewish culture, names had meanings similar to American Indians. And we know that American Indians have names like Fighting Bear and Soaring Eagle and Bear Who Fights with Soaring Eagle, right? These are cool <laughs> names. And in my house, we have this, this uh, kind of this internal war where I think that my grandmother uh, was either Spanish or Native American. Uh, but Michelle thinks uh, that I am white, and so she doesn't see it. And so I'm, I want to get one of those DNA tests. I want to find out. Um, and so I think it would be so cool, you know, to have one of those names. Instead, I'm Tim, right? <laughs> but I think that, uh, I think with all those possibilities for so many cool manly names, I still think I would get stuck with something like cries at Disney movies. <laughs> In a similar way, the names given by God through Isaiah are descriptions of God's characteristics. And so these names aren't formal titles, but they denote the personal essential characteristics. And so we see in the Old Testament this name, uh, Avi Abun, and it means father of strength. I've highlighted the end there. That's, that's um, because it's backwards in your, the way we understand it, that the father part of that is at the end of that word. And so father of strength. And so that word, that name, means strong one. The name Aviasaf is literally father of gathering. So it means one who gathers. And so we see uh, in Genesis, there's a man named Jubal, and he was the father, the same word here, this Av. It says that he is the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. It doesn't mean that he literally sired everyone who plays guitar, right? No, it means that he's the creator, the author, the founder. And so the word that we're interested in, in Isaiah 9-6, this word that, that is everlasting father, literally means father of eternity. And so it means that Jesus is the father or the author, the creator, the possessor of perpetuity, of eternity. And so the names given here in Isaiah, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, these are descriptions of the coming Messiah and expressions of his relationship to his people. And we're so far removed from our understanding of what a king is, right? We don't have kings. We're not ruled by kings. Uh, the only king and queen and prince and princesses that we, we know of across the pond, right? They're more celebrity than actual, like, authority. And we get, or we understand, uh, we see despots and we see dictators and we see them uh, kill and steal from their people. And so the immediate context of Isaiah uses language to describe the birth of a king. And so some Jewish commentators have said, well, they're talking about Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, but he's born in the wrong time. The chronology does not work, and so it excludes him. He was before, born before the events described here. So it can't be Hezekiah's birth that's being foretold. And so Isaiah is speaking of this future ruler 
that will be born as we all were. That he's a human ruler, but he's also not merely human. The titles, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, these specify that he will be both human and divine. He will be both God and King. And so, 700 years before Jesus' birth, Isaiah is prophesying of the true light, the great son of David, Jesus, who is incarnate. He will be the final king, the king to end all kings, of whose rule there will be no end. And so Jesus was to be this provider and this protector, this spiritual leader for his people. All right, so everlasting father, what does it mean? So Logan and I have this, this show that we watch, right? It's our guy time. Uh, the girls are not interested in the show, and so he gets excited every time uh, our DVR records one of them, and, and we watch it every week uh, when, we, when it's on, and we've watched it from the very beginning, right? This show, uh, I, th- I don't know how many seasons it's into, but we've watched all of them. This show is called The Flash, right? It's about a DC superhero, The Flash, and it's this really fun show um, because he can run so fast but he's figured out that he can actually move through time. So he's, he can move back in time. And so he has this dilemma in that his mother was murdered. So does he go back in time, save his mother from being murdered, but, but the possibility then is that things will change enough that he won't actually get the powers that allowed him to go back and to do that. He understands that reality will change if he does that. Um, all right, spoiler alert here. Does anybody actually watch this show? All right, there was a lot more in first service. I'm, I'm ashamed of you guys. Are you caught up on this show? Close your ears. <laughs> Spoiler alert. I'm sorry. It's part of the sermon. I have to say it. So he goes back and he saves his mom. And... Uh, and he's willing to sacrifice this potential losing, you know, things uh, for himself. But what he finds out is that because he's made this one change, lots of other things change, and other people around him are hurt, and other people around him die, and other uh, people around him have to make these sacrifices. And he says, that's not okay. So then he goes back, right, to prevent himself from preventing the murder, and he puts it all back the way it's supposed to be. The problem is, then he comes back and still, still things are changed, still things are, are messed up, still things are hurt, still things are broken, right? All right, why am I talking about this? Look, I know this is science fiction, but I think it's fun to talk about time travel because I think it's written on our hearts that God is bigger than just our understanding and our experience of time. Our imagination is stirred by a God who is both out of time and working in and through history. And this is why we love H.G. Uh, Wells' The Time Machine. We love movies like Back to the Future, shows like Quantum Leap. Ah, Quantum Leap. Scott Bakula, great stuff. But let's think about eternity and its implications. To say that God is eternal means that He has always existed. Psalm 90 verse 2 says that before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And so, as humans, we live inside of time and space that God has created, and it's hard for us to imagine what it means to, be, to exist as a timeless, spaceless, immaterial being. 
For us, time is linear. And in human terms, eternity, it stretches all the way back in one direction and all the way forward in another direction. And as you approach the end of that, well, there is no end. It keeps going. That is eternity. This is hard for us to, get, uh, to understand, to wrap our head around. But this is where God dwells. And so this is also how God sees things. And so before God created a single thing, He knew the beginning from the end. God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. And so everything that exists, including all power, belongs to God. He's omnipotent. Everything that begins to exist needs a cause. And, and we get this. Think about this. We don't, things don't just pop into existence. Ponies or pianos or even the smallest, tiniest thing don't just pop into existence. We don't uh, walk down the street and are wondering if something is going to fall out of the sky onto us. We don't drive our car wondering if something is going to pop into existence in front of us. We don't sit scared all the time that something is going to pop into our body, right? This is not how it works. Things that exist or begin to exist have to have a cause. And so everything that had a beginning has a beginner. And so the fact that the universe had a beginning is actually evidence for God. We see in the Kalam cosmological argument, this syllogism, this, this logically reasoned deductive argument, and it goes like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. We just talked about that. The universe began to exist, and therefore the universe has a cause. And so consensus among scientists is that the universe consisting of time, space, and matter began, it had a beginning, and it began with a big bang. The first words of the Bible agree that in the beginning, and that God was there, as Greg Kokel says, a big bang requires a big banger. <laughs> Romans 1.20 talks to this. It says, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. And even if we didn't see a building being built, but we walk up and we see this building, we have to understand, we have to know that there was an architect involved, there were the laborers involved, that there was a foreman involved, that it just didn't appear out of no, nowhere. In the same way, all of creation demands a creator. And if at the end of it all, we go before God and we say, God, there just wasn't enough evidence, that's not a good excuse. Every action has a first cause. Because God is eternal, He is the uncaused cause of all things. He is the creator John also begins his Gospels with his words, in the beginning. And he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. This Word became flesh and is Jesus. So because God is the first cause, everything is dependent on Him. He is an independent self-contained being. We see this in Exodus 3. God is talking to Moses through the burning bush, and he says, I am who I am. That's his name. 
When Moses says, who sent me? He says, tell him, I am has sent me to you. And this means that he is self-existent. He is the self-existent one. And Jesus applies that very same name of God to himself when he says to the Pharisees, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. We might not recognize it right away, but the Pharisees absolutely did. They picked up rocks to stone him, to kill him for calling himself God, for equating himself with God. It means that what is true about him today has always been and will always be, that God is unchanging. There's nothing that is deteriorating or that needs to be improved upon. He is perfect. So God is not in need of anything. Have you ever thought about why God creates so much uninhabited space? Our planet is basically this speck in the galaxy. And our galaxy is this speck in this universe of galaxies. And yet we're the only ones. Why does God wait so long to reveal Himself, to intervene in history, to come again? God doesn't need to be efficient. We would say that it's wasteful, but that's impossible for God. What is God wasting? He has everything. He has unlimited resources and unlimited time. Since God the Creator is eternal and brought into existence the finite universe, He must have chosen a time to do that. Now, remember, this is before time. God creates time but then he chooses before, but we can't really even say before. Look, I know it's confusing, but that he would choose when the universe would come into existence, and something that has a choice has a will. And so this is evidence for, this is proof of that the universe uh, of God's will. We also know that, that being conscious beings, being the creation of God, because we have will and volition, the one who created us must also have a will. You cannot give something that you do not have. This means that God is personal. All creation then comes from God by His will and for His pleasure, dependent on Him for His sustenance. Colossians 1 speaks to this. It declares that all things were created. It's talking about Jesus. Both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things have been created through Him and for Him. And so He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. So God is the sovereign provider. I've had people say with with regard to the Kalam argument, well, that doesn't doesn't prove God. That doesn't prove the God of the Bible. Well, no, but it it shows that there is a powerful, incredibly powerful, uh, personal uh, creator. Starting to sound a little bit like God. Why does it matter? ABC radio announcer Paul Harvey, he was on the radio from the 1950s to the 1990s. And every Christmas day, he would tell this story. I'm not going to read it line by line, but I'm going to try and tell it to you as best I can. It's a story of a man, a man who didn't believe in God, but his family did. And so on Christmas Eve, his wife and his kids go off to, to Christmas Eve service, and he's at home by himself. And Sitting by the fire, the storm gets pretty, um, it's a, there's a snowstorm, and it gets very strong. And suddenly he hears a large thud at his window, and he looks out, but he can't see anything. The snow 
uh, is blinding him. And he hears another large thud, but he still can't see because it's snowing way too hard. When the snow lets up, he puts on his boots and he puts on his coat and he goes outside to see what's going on. And on his farm, in his field, are geese. What's a, what's a big, what's a, is it a gaggle? It's a gaggle of geese, right? And they're confused and they're cold and they got caught up in this storm and now they're on the ground in his farm and he knows that if he doesn't get them to someplace safe, they're going to die. It's too cold out. And so he has this barn. He opens up the doors to this barn and he tries to get them to go inside. He turns on the light and they, they won't go in. He tries to shoo them in and they, they just fly around. He tries to put breadcrumbs up to it. They're not getting it, right? And so he wonders, what am I going to do? He realizes that they're afraid of him. He says, why don't they follow me? Can't they see this is the only place they can survive the storm? He thought for a moment and then he just realized they won't follow a human. He knew that they were afraid of him. To to them, he reasoned, I am a strange and terrifying creature. If only I could let them know that they can trust me, that I'm not trying to hurt them but to help them. But how? Because any move he made tended to frighten them more. It confused them more and they wouldn't follow. They wouldn't be led or they wouldn't be shooed because of their fear. He says, if only I could be a goose and mingle with them and speak their language, then I could tell them not to be afraid. Then I could show them the way to be safe. And and he started to realize, I could show them the way to be safe and warm in the barn. But I would have to become one of them so they could see and hear and understand. And this is Christmas. Jesus is the goose. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit have always been in perfect relationship. There was nothing lacking from that relationship. And so God has invited us into this perfect relationship through His Son. So Christ came to model holiness. He came to save us from sin and separation from God. And He came to reveal God in a tangible way. And so because you can only give what you, can, what you possess, Jesus is the author of, the possessor of, the founder of, the father of eternity. And so only Jesus can give us eternal life in His kingdom. Today we looked at what Jesus is and is not. He's not one of many gods. He's the one true God. He's not a lesser deity, but fully God. He's not a partial God or someone aspiring to be God. He is and has always been God Almighty. He's not a creation, but the Creator. He's not an angel, but the angels adore and they worship Him. He won't change or fade away, but has always been and always will be immutable. He's not growing in perfection, but is perfect kindness, perfect compassion, perfect truth, perfect grace, perfect forgiveness, and perfect love. He's not the Father, but He perfectly images Him and is united with Him. He's not the Holy Spirit, but He perfectly bears the fruit of the Spirit, and He advocates and He intercedes for the children of God forever. He's the eternal God who stepped into history so that you could live in His kingdom forever. During his sermon last week, Rick 
um, showed a video by Dr. S.M. Lockridge, the sermon, That's My King. And in it, he asks several times, do you know him? And I think that that matters. <laughs> and that's kind of it. I, I struggled in how to end this sermon. And I had a lot of ideas in how I was going to wrap it up. As a preacher, what was I going to implore you to do? What steps do I want you to take? I'm supposed to tell you to go do something. I had a totally different ending to this sermon. And I scrapped it all. I had props. We made crafts. I have a hundred yards of rope in my, in my house now that I don't know what to do with. <laughs> but I want you, what I, all I want you to know, I want you to know how amazing Jesus is. I want you to be in awe of him. I want you to have an accurate view of him to the best of our ability. I want you not just to know about him, but to truly know him as well. And I want you to trust in him for your salvation, but also for peace and joy and hope in the big things and the small things. His government and his peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. I want you to enjoy him now and forever. I want you to believe his promises. I want you to follow him because his ways are best. I want you to experience a changed life by faith in him. I want this life to be contagious. I want it to be infectious. I want it to transform. I'm actually doing better than I did first service. Um, I want it to transform you guys. I want it to transform your houses. And I want it to transform this church. And I want it to transform the communities that you go back into. He's made himself available to us. And he has infinite worth. And I want you to know that in Christ we will have complete and never-ending satisfaction. And so if you're having difficulty doing that, in knowing Christ, in trusting in Christ, if you're having difficulty doing that, come talk to me. Come talk to any of the pastors or the elders. You guys, pastors and elders, please stand up. Just me. <laughs> yeah, pastors and elders, stand up. All right. I want you to come find these guys. These guys are praying for you guys. All the time. So come talk to us. I love encouragement. I love when you guys come up to me after a sermon and encourage me. And you guys are great encouragers. But I also want to know what questions you guys have. What are the unanswered questions? Where are you confused? Where have we encouraged you? Where have we impacted you? Where are you discouraged? Was it helpful? What are the pastors and the elders missing with regard to equipping and encouraging you guys? Thanks and we love you. Let me pray. God, change our hearts. If we have any false understandings or false um, 
perceptions of who you are. God, we want to know you as you have um, revealed yourself to us. We want to worship you in, in, in truth, um, the truth of who you are. God, we want to uh, fall down at your feet in awe of who you are, the eternal God who became a baby, lived and died for us, that we would understand better who you are. We love you. We praise you. We want to see your name glorified in our lives, in our homes, in this city, God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.